It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. In 2016, the Russian government executed a daring plan to meddle into the American elections in an apparent attempt to get Donald Trump to the White House. It was happening before our eyes, but few people saw it coming, and even fewer were able to make sense of it. The Russians used internet trolls, fake Facebook accounts, and hackers to drive a wedge through the American people. For many in America and around the world, it came like a shot in the dark. Disinformation, something we thought was just a Cold War-era relic, was back, and back big time. Since then, Congress has held multiple hearings on how to counter disinformation campaigns. Facebook, Google, and other tech giants have shut down thousands of fake accounts and called out their operators. And American spies have hacked back. More than two years later, we're all still trying to figure out exactly how the Russians did it and how to get ready for 2020. Do we even understand the problem? Rule Schauenberg is the Director of Intelligence and Research at Celsius Advisory Group, a consulting firm based in the U.S. Schauenberg and his colleagues research and simulate attacks that are not just limited to the cyber domain to help their customers understand what a real-world information operation looks like. So information operations. Tell me, how does this fit into, quote-unquote, the cyber? Well, cyber is a part of information operations. And I think that first we, we kind of have to disentangle stuff, right? Because we hear the term information operations thrown around a lot. But really what we are focusing on currently in the public debate is influence operations, right? We talk about the social media aspect, fake accounts, fake amplification. But that is really just the influence part of information operations, so information operations is actually a broad spectrum where cyber or offensive and defensive cyber operations is just a small part, right? There's the, the PSYOP part, there's the electronic warfare part, et cetera, et cetera. So we basically have a misunderstanding in the public domain of what we're actually dealing with because we are focusing strictly on that social media aspect. And not just that, we're also focusing on it in a very tactical way. Information operations have to be looked at in a more strategic fashion. So in a one-year timeline, five-year timeline, 10-year timeline, which is something we're not doing at all at the moment, right? And at the same time, information operations in that strategic sense um, are very hard to quantify. It's all qualitative, right? How do you measure influence? I mean, that's the thing that everyone always says, especially when you look at you know, the, I mean, the elephant in the room, the, the DNC hack, Podesta, et cetera. I mean, how much did that actually affect? To me, I, I mean, I've done a lot of reporting on this. You can't quantify it, but the only thing I can say is that information operation, that influence operation, it had some effect. Right. So what I found very interesting is that it took us a very, very long time in the public domain to figure out that the DNC hack was nothing more than a supporting operation of a greater plot, if you will. Right. So, so we, we, we tend to look at all these things from a very narrow vertical. Right. So if you have a cyber background, you kind of look at, OK, this, this target was hacked or Maybe there were some implants. Maybe something else happened. And that's kind of the, the area that you confine yourself to. And that is easy to understand, right? You, you kind of look at an actor. 
you kind of look at malicious domains, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is easy to grasp. That influence part and how one domain influences another domain, right, is much harder to disentangle and takes a lot of effort um, on everybody's part. Okay, so then give me an example. How does how does a larger operation, how does that look? Because, I mean, if you're looking at it from an... Because I think really what this comes down to is espionage. These are espionage campaigns, essentially. I'm, I'm not sure espionage is the, the right way to look at it, but it's certainly a game of intelligence and counterintelligence. Or statecraft. It's statecraft. It doesn't necessarily have to be statecraft in the, in the greater scheme, right? It's not just our uh, major adversaries like Russia and China. I think since 2016, we've seen a rise of not just private teams, but also political operatives, right? 2016, regardless of how you feel about it and what your thoughts are, and um, it was the watershed moment where a lot of people realized, oh, we, we are fighting for hearts and minds. Forget about all this kinetic stuff that's like dangerous and you know, costs a lot of money. We realized we can just use small, nimble teams to try and influence a target demographic. Right? And that's where it gets more complicated because we need to um, distinguish a fact and a conjecture. Right? So if you want to understand information operations or the influence part of it, right, it goes to motive and intent of a particular actor. What are they trying to achieve? So that, that from an intelligence perspective goes beyond attribution. Right? It's not just figuring out who shot, uh, who fired uh, the gun, but it's also who paid for it and what were their motives, right? So, so that's much harder to figure out than simply, oh, this person fired the weapon and that's what we have. So if you want to figure out motive and intent and the adversary is a state actor, that means you need to have visibility in how that state actor is thinking. Commercial entities aren't going to have that capability. And for the state actors who do have the capability, once they have that capability, they don't want to give it up. So I think that's been part of the issue for the U.S. government. It's like, what do we know? and What can we say publicly? The USG doesn't want to venture into the speculation and conjecture area too much. But if they can somehow prove, hey, this is what the actor was thinking, then the actor knows, oh, we've been compromised one, one way or the other, which, you know, is not good for whoever's watching. Okay, so you're saying that obviously the cyber aspect of it or some of the influence operations that occurred, like, you know, the DNC hack, it was supporting of this whole operation. So now that we know people are familiar with that whole, you know, Russia tried to steal the election kind of narrative that we keep hearing, what was the whole operation? Walk me through it. Well, again, it's very hard to say with certainty, right? Because it's conjecture, uh, more more so than, than dealing with facts. What I think we, we need to uh, reevaluate is that this wasn't about an election per se. It's about it was a, a campaign targeting the American people, right? The, the election result itself did not necessarily matter for Russia, but it's about amplifying that you know discontent, right? It's a long-term operation. I don't know if you've heard of uh, Yuri Bezmenov, who was a KGB defector, right? He defected at the in the late 60s, and in the, the mid-80s, he gave a TV interview, which you can find on YouTube, and he basically talked about, you know, strategic demoralization and how that's a decades-long pro, uh, process and program, right? And, and that information is half a century old at that point. So if we factor in all this 
you know, more research, all these new technologies that easily create echo chambers, right? Facebook, et cetera, Google, they very easily create custom echo chambers for, um, for anyone, right? Through targeted advertising and all that good stuff. Um, that entire apparatus really allows foreign adversaries to influence us uh, at scale. Nowadays, it sounds like there's some sort of relationship between the Russian government and, let's say, allegedly the NRA. Is that what you're kind of saying? You're, you're, you're trying to create chaos within your adversary, or at least have your adversary mistrust its own political system, so that when you're dealing with it on a global level, they're weakened. Right. The way I personally look at 2016 is was a continuation of a long-term systemic uh, attack against our uh, institutions, right? And we, we now basically mistrust everything. If you look at censorship, right, you, you can look at the Russian model and you can look at the Chinese model. China very thoroughly controls what information is available to its citizens. The Russians, they don't have those constraints to the same extent. From where I sit, I think the Russians learned after the Cold War that if you very narrowly confine information available to your population, um, then they will trust whatever information is not, you know, is outside of that supply chain, right? So if when people listen to Voice of America, they trusted it. So in the long run, you know, for oppressive regimes, they start realizing if we filter out any kind of dissent, people who do not trust the government will trust that dissenting voice. So if you simply, you know, let everything go, all these different opinions or facts are allowed in the public domain, then how do you determine what is fact? And, and that is basically one of the, the big fights that we effectively have going on right now. How do you determine what is real when there is a million echo chambers out there all, you know, having that unique answer that is suitable to, to you and your target demographic? And, and that is the the long-term scary part from a societal perspective. I mean, some of this also has to do with, you know, are you familiar with Surkov? Um, I'm not sure. He was a, a Russian sort of political theorist slash oh, like okay, okay, Putin's yeah. henchman, created this whole idea of, uh, he actually had a background in performance art. Yeah, yeah, I re- sorry, it was your pronunciation that threw me off. But. Surkov? <laughs> um, he essentially says... You know, you create mistrust between all political affiliations within a target, right? So for, for uh, Putin, what it was, was the Kremlin would directly finance both left and right wing parties and organizations to have them fight each other. When then the obvious answer to all this, the only person that you'd, you'd trust amidst all this chaos is this strongman like Putin, well, it's, uh, you know, anything is possible and nothing is true, right? So what do you trust at that point, right? And then it really starts revolving around your echo chamber, right? And, and you will um, just accept whatever information is given to you within that echo chamber, right? And if you kind of try and translate that into, you know, all the social media that we are absorbing, uh, mostly through our smartphones, right? Like a lot of it is about agitating, uh, a person. It's like, can you believe that this just happened? Well, at that point, you are, you know... You and that know, happens on the, the the right and the left. Right, right. There, there, there's... It's not about, you know, sides. It's just, you know, everywhere, right? And, and once you find yourself, you know, in an agitated state, you become more susceptible to whatever messaging 
somebody's trying to feed you. So I, in the long run, what is fact is, is really one of the fights that we, that we have to fight. And looking at uh, investigative reporting, some of the reporters that we talked to, they started to realize as we're moving more into a data or information-based reporting rather than just talking to people, how do we trust open sources, right? So, so to tie it back to cyber, how do you trust something that, that you find on VirusTotal, right? We, we, we assume everything that's uploaded to VirusTotal is, is trustworthy, is uploaded by somebody who just found something interesting. But what if somebody starts poisoning that well intentionally, right? And you can therefore seed stories, right? Because people go through VirusTotal, this repository of all these different binaries and other stuff, no, mostly malware, but not exclusively, right? You, you, you can basically plant a story. And as people basically dig through a data set, they, they find something, oh, this is interesting. Maybe this actor tried to target that particular target. But how do you verify that that actually happened? How do you know that somebody didn't put that there on purpose? That maybe framed North Korea or... Yeah, whoever. It, whoever. Yeah. What do you do in this space? What, what, what is your job? What's your company? Um, well, in our, our company, we basically um, we, we deal with different clients. So some clients realize, oh, I, we are a long-term hard target that realize, oh, we, we are dealing in a complicated space. We are starting to see reputational attacks, right? We, we are being manipulated. And how do we counter that? Or they're seeing that there, there's a fallout from, from something else that happened that, that may not directly tie to them but still they realize, oh, there's something going on. So we, we offer both services as well as training is how do you, and how do you defend your information supply chain, right? And that information supply chain affects both, you know, the way you consume information or the way your systems consume information as well as how do you produce uh, information or news when it comes to newsrooms. Um, and how do you verify the integrity of each step? Where in this information supply chain exists the possibility of influence or of subversion? What do you do? Do you go and you tell them, like, this is what you should tweet? Do you... No, no, it, it goes way, way beyond a tweeting. Tweeting is not really on our radar, I guess. To some extent it is, but it's not. But it's, it's looking at uh, if, if, let's say, it's a newsroom. It's like um, we started having some conversations about, you know, how are your reporters being influenced? So some of these conversations go be, are no longer just, oh, watch out for that malicious PDF, but watch out for, you know, sourcing and all that kind of... And counterintelligence. People that are... Because, you know, the, what was that one story? The Washington Post actually caught the people trying to sell them a, a fake story. Right, right. So, and, 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 that, and that's basically the, the shift that we, we have to undergo from a very, you know tools-based approach, like I use this piece of antivirus and, you know, that protects me from malware to a more pronounced long-term counterintelligence program where you try and figure out, you know, where are my weaknesses and are people actively trying to exploit those? It almost sounds like you're selling, like, counterintelligence to all these people, like how to actually spot being, being manipulated, but also being used as a source, being, you know, I mean, something like, I mean, we don't know for sure because the Mueller report hasn't come out, but there could have been a, an opportunity or a chance that WikiLeaks was like an un, unwitting asset to allegedly the Russian government and they were given information that they then dispersed uh, to larger 
public. Is it stuff like that? Do we have to be aware of where this, this information... Because I, I think of this, from my perspective as a reporter, you kind of... You will always, especially if you're getting government information, you think, why am I getting this? Like, why am I being fed this? Right, yeah. I mean, it's basically what it comes down to. How do you do counterintelligence in a uh, smart and actionable manner? And how can you figure out, you know, who's trying to target you and in what ways? So if I'm hearing this correctly, what you're saying is in the modern age that we're in right now, 2019, it is so volatile the way we consume and fling information that we now need a new way of interpreting it and accepting what facts are. We can't just sort of take one source, even one news story, and just, here we are. I think that's very much on the mark, right? We, we have to, as a society, we have to rethink how do we consume information? Because what, what effectively what's happening right now is we're trying to consume information in real time. Well, the adversaries have, you know, their cyber capabilities or whatever you want to call them, and they can feed that disinformation at machine speed. Fact-checking happens at human speed. That's, that's a losing proposition, mm-hmm. right? So, so how, how do you deal with that? And it applies to a newsroom, also applies to a financial, right? If you're a hedge fund, you know, how do you trust that information that you ingest? Or ah, okay. when you think about artificial intelligence, okay, okay, you get all this data. How do you verify that it's actually good data? So especially in, in some of the sectors that don't have as much experience with adversarial data or whatever you want to call it, right, or adversarial influence, how do you, you know, kind of reconfigure the lens through which you look at things? Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Damn. We are in a whole... We are in a whole heap of trouble, I have to tell you, because I don't know. Have you been on Twitter lately? <laughs> have you seen it? I, I was on Twitter this afternoon, and I could feel myself getting agitated. It's, and it's like, it's, oh, this is not good, and then I closed it. And It used to be that people would call Twitter a hellscape, and it would be like, oh, man, that's such a great word, hellscape. But now that I see people call Twitter a hellscape, I'm like, that's not even close to what it actually is. It's so much worse than that. I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic in a lot of ways as a source of information gathering, but it's also just easily represents, I think, the worst of humanity's ingest of information and, you know, the, the return cycle. It's, it's, it's like, go on there sometimes and I'm just like, oh. Right, and, and whenever you feel that agitation, that's when you're vulnerable to influence, right? As the Soviets said, agitprop, agitation and propaganda. It's kind of the, the foundation, if you will. Yeah, it really is. Now, it was, it was funny. Somebody asked me this recently. They said, well, what about the U.S.? Does the U.S. do this? Are they good at it? Because it seems like the Russians have been pretty amazing at this for a long time. Um, yeah, from where I stand, I don't think the U.S. is particularly good at it. Um, I think intelligence states like Russia and China are just inherently better at it, right? Because if you grow up in that environment, it's what you know. It's all very cloak and dagger, and it kind of comes natural to you 
you know, all this subversion. Because well, you're, you're in a very surveillance state where, where intelligence is capital. Right, exactly. Because it's a, you know, it's, it's a, to- I mean, I wouldn't call Russia a totalitarian state, but I think China at this point is pretty much still a totalitarian state. Uh, I think it's, it's fair to call both of them intelligence states. Mm-hmm. Right, and w- when that is the environment in which you grow up, you have a de- very different way of, of of looking at things and looking at how information flows and h- how you know to do these things at scale. Have you ever heard of the Protocols of Zion? Yeah, of course. Which is which is crazy because it's it literally was the first real for people who don't know what it is. It was essentially this 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 made up conspiracy that was created by something called the Okrana which was essentially the, it was the czarist intelligence agency. Uh, and it was probably the first really, truly semi-modern intelligence agency, but it created this complete garbage anti-Semitic pamphlet that described this Jewish conspiracy, uh, global conspiracy to take over the world, essentially. And it was spread widely. It's still used to this day by some people. Yeah, true. It's, it's insane, I mean, that's that's an influence operation. It, it sure is, right? Uh, and again, going back to Bismanov, um, Bismanov, um, he, he said, right, eighty-five percent of the KGB was focused on active measures, right? And, and that is was something that was um, repeated by other defectors uh, later on, right? So eighty-five percent. Uh, was focused on influence operations or psyops or whatever you want to call them. And what's, what were some of the ones they did in the in the U.S.? Oh God, I mean there was there there, there were so many. I think there was the stuff about uh, fake news about um, or disinformation, I should say, about uh, churches being burned down in the South. And I think the Clinton admin actually uh, issued a, a note on that. So that's how high it went and or how high it can go. And that's just, it's constant at this point, right? But it's, it's no longer just about feeding you false facts, if that's a term I should be using to begin with. It's not just about feeding you disinformation, right? It's about, again, just trying to constantly remind you, like, like what is fact, what is fiction, and making it harder for you to, you know, distinguish the two. I mean, it's, it's really insane, too, because you get this world we're in now where the term fake news is thrown around by everybody. I mean... It's it's wild. Like soccer players use fake news when they're trying to denounce a story. Uh, politicians, actors, everybody, people of cultural significance, and it's it's so widespread. I think it's become not so much that is actual fake news, but it's now become I don't like that news, so I call it fake news. Uh, and that that's part of the that's part of why it all works so well. Just to think about it in different ways, that one of the prime directives of prop- or successful propaganda is propaganda has to be total. You have to be confronted with it all the time, right? So not now, I guess over the last like two years or so, we've just been hearing about disinformation and fake news, and it all sounds very terrible. So now, now we're slowly trying to uh, be forced into this idea of, hey, we need to legislate this problem away, which... Uh, when I started talking about this problem more actively back in 2015, um, in, in, the, in the lead up to, to some stuff, I was like, this is the long-term strategy of our adversaries. They, they, they will want us to try and legislate our free speech. We will see it as some sort of tactical victory, but in reality will be a strategic defeat. 
So that is, I think, where we really need to, um, you know, start thinking about, hey, how do we do any of this stuff without curbing our free speech? Because if we start curbing our free speech, that, you know, it's un-American. Right. And there's a lot of conversations about free speech that I think are, you know, a lot of people saying a lot of crazy shit with free speech, though. It's, that, that is certainly true, but um, think about it, um, going back to the cyber side, think about spam or malware, right? It's, uh, how, how do you legislate that problem away? We haven't been effective for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. What makes us think we can legislate this problem away? And the other thing then to consider is that foreign intelligence agencies aren't going to care about our laws. They're going to do their thing. They're going to be undeterred. So what are you actually attempting to fix? So who are the big players? I mean, obviously, we got Russia. I mean, they're one of the biggest, if not the biggest. China. Who else? Uh, Iran is becoming more, has become more active. You, you can even try and look at some of the stuff that North Korea has put out as an interesting way of trying to position themselves, right? But again, a lot of it is conjecture, right? That burden of proof goes beyond attribution. It's about motive and intent. How do you figure out why somebody says something, right? Two people could say the exact same thing, but one could be, you know, well-intended and the other person could be, you know, up to no good. So, so simply, you know, looking at a lot of stuff that's being said on social media isn't that, you know, doesn't give you that clear a picture. And... The other thing is because everything is so out in the open, it's very easy for um, actors to basically look at whatever disinformation campaign they see on social media and copy that, right? And then repurpose it for their own agenda. I mean, we say that the U.S. government is no is not very good at this, but I would say the U.S. government is probably the best at manipulating its own population. Because if you look at something like the way right now they're selling this this war in Venezuela or a possible war in Venezuela. And it's pretty wild, you know? So the way I look at it is that targeted advertising has basically allowed direct messaging from anyone in the world to a particular target demographic. So the idea from, let's say, 50 years ago that a state more or less had a monopoly on messaging its, its, its people, its, its, uh, its population, that, that notion is, is gone with targeted advertising. So what are you saying to that? You're saying it's not just the U.S. government doing this? You're saying it's probably likely some of the interested parties who are trying to spread pro-invade Venezuela propaganda? Um, I, I guess I'm not talking about um, Venezuela specifically. I'm just saying targeted advertising gives everybody the tools to do targeted uh, agitprop. Right, so Which I'm going to read between the lines there. <laughs> Because, I mean, uh, the, the New York Times debunked that this video of uh, uh, burning convoys, that it was the, the Maduro government that had done it. And then, turns out, no, it actually was, it was the opposition that had burned it with Molotov cocktails. And, you know, these were images spread around by major U.S. government figures as almost like this pretext of how brutal this Maduro regime is. Not to say that the regime isn't, isn't brutal, but, you know, going to invade a country and its uh, sovereignty is, you know, this is a much larger question. But, you know, they did that, the Iraq war. Look at the way they sold that. You got some U.S. government clients, I understand. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, uh, again, about motive and and intent. Uh, Generally speaking, right, what what is the uh, 
historically, the, the message that the U.S. has tried to convey is, you know, liberal, liberal democracy and all that good stuff, right? It's been generally about freedom. Let, let me put it differently. The work we do is agnostic, right? Mm-hmm. We, we simply look at how, how are um, people being influenced, and, and that's kind of, or, or, or systems, uh, and that's kind of where it starts and ends. And, you know, I'm not here to talk about what, you know, the U.S. or any government has been doing, um, I'm here to basically, you know, look at this uh, impact on society and look at how we, um, you know, consume information, right? And, and rethink how we do that. So, Which I think we've got a serious problem with. Right, right, right. Uh, how do you do reporting in a place where people are actively targeting sources, right? I mean, how do you, how do you create truth, in a society like this that's so fragile. Like, how do you actually do that now? We'd like to think it was much simpler before, but I think now, seeing the fallout from that particular election, like you put it, it's a watershed moment. Whether you like whatever happened or whatever outcome, we have to accept that there is some sort of, you know, war for ideas, but I think the biggest one is obviously a war for facts. Right, it's 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 a war for facts, and it's a war about not just facts, but you know the institutions that you believe in, and that is very difficult to comprehend. I think as a as a larger demographic, right? We obviously have an interest in this uh, in this particular topic, and um, want to figure out how we are being manipulated. You know, for a general audience, they they don't think about these things, right? I think we're getting there, though. You know, I think people are starting to see that manipulation. Look at, for example, even the sort of this, suddenly we have a public discourse about uh, billionaires being possibly wrong, right? Like, where'd that come from? I mean, these are things that we're starting to see sort of these, these global contexts of manipulation and powerful institutions that manipulate masses, right? And also, I think a lot of that has to do with what happened in the last four years, right? Around four years, 2016, even before that, I would say. And I think it's it's changing our perceptions. Yeah, our perceptions are being reshaped uh, entirely, right? And and some of that might expose power structures that we weren't familiar with, and some of that might be to, um, you know, uh, influence us in a bad way, right? If you go back to Bezmanov, etc., it's all about how do you make the adversary think in a way that they are going to do something that is good for, you know, somebody else, right? How do you get somebody to act against their best interest, right? And, and, that, and that, is, that is the core of, of what we're, we're dealing with at a, at a global scale. Do you have a good example of how maybe cyber was combined effectively with an influence operation? Um, I think the best example to date is the NotPetya attack back in uh, 2017 that primarily affected Ukraine but spread well beyond Ukraine and, and hit basically the Western logistics supply chain. So that was a, a piece of malware that basically pretended to be ransomware, but there, there was no way to recover your data. So all these machines that were getting hit by NotPetya uh, were non-recoverable. So it basically created huge havoc in Ukraine, but it didn't stop there. This attack has been attributed to the GRU, and in 2017, we saw NotPetya, and NotPetya posed itself as a ransomware attack. It was being pushed through a 
tax uh, software that is uh, very popular in Ukraine and by people or companies who do business with Ukraine. So it was pushed out as a malicious update. And as a result, basically anyone who was using that piece of software, Binot Petya, which subsequently uh, spread through all these networks, right? It was a worm that, that hit, hit all the networks of the, these companies that are, are using that software. So banks and utilities, et cetera, et cetera, were, were crippled in Ukraine, but it didn't stop there. It was also, uh, you know, Ukrainian business partners or whatever you want to call them. So some of those companies were, were major logistics supply chain companies that suddenly were out of commission for a very long time, right? Maersk, uh, FedEx, you know, these major, major companies were, were, were hit. And what was interesting there is that the first element is um, it poses as ransomware. So the first wave of news is, hey, new ransomware is hitting all these companies. What's going on? And the second wave of news basically uh, focused on the um, usage of Eternal Blue from the Shadow Broker leaks and, and basically said, oh, one of the ways not patches spreads is through here. And the effect thereof was we basically saw Rob Joyce uh, then at the White House having to defend NSA and its usage of these tools just after the, the biggest cyber attack in history, right? That, that this was... Uh, estimated at more than $10 billion in damages. So right at the point where there should have been major, major pushback from the West saying, hey, we condemn this attack. Instead, the West was more or less uh, backed into a corner. The disconnect between how a lot of intelligence agencies observe that attack and its fallout is very, very different from how the news media and the average reader uh, observe that fallout. It's effectively conjecture I should point that out. But if the GRU had planned this, it certainly worked out very well for them. Right, because it just, it, it, what it essentially did was it undermined the support the West has in Ukraine while also effectively taking out, you know, a ton of machines in that country. And I'm sure weakening Ukraine's uh, image business-wise abroad, which is, you know, thereby isolating it further. Right, right. So there, there's that. And again, the, the U.S. wasn't able to push back, right? The U.S. was hit as well. But instead of pushing back, saying this is unacceptable, right? Because, uh, again, th this was a destructive attack. And I think up until NotPetya, all the major destructive attacks that we know, like... Um, the power uh, grid in right, Ukraine. In Ukraine, but, but also, you know, the, the hits against uh, Saudi Aramco or, you know... Uh, other places, they have all been confined to one particular company, right? So these were destructive attacks, but it's extremely, extremely targeted versus not Petya, which really spread far and wide, right? So, so that, that's a whole different set of norms that are, you know, being transgressed, right? So, so that there needed to be a strong pushback saying, hey, this is unacceptable because this is a major escalation from uh, simply targeting one particular company, uh, and instead, you know, we, 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 the the headlines basically said, you know, and you know, they they, they were anti NSA, which uh, again, you know, people can be um, people can have that view, but it wasn't the right time. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so last question for you: If you can give anybody some advice, like common people right now, 
what would it be to sort of not be manipulated? What, what would you tell them? Um, I think I would start with saying that freedom of speech is extremely important and we can't give that, that up to try and fight something that we can't legislate away. We, we haven't been ex- successful with legislating similar types of problems. There's nothing to suggest that legislation will uh, be a net positive. Uh, secondly, I would say use ad blockers. Targeted advertising is one of the main ways we are being manipulated. And uh, third, I would say that read newspapers or, or rather, you know, re- read, get your news from places that actually have time to do fact-checking, right? So it doesn't have to be a newspaper per se, but, you know, go to reputable places. I'm Ben Maku, and this week's episode was produced by Lorenzo Franceschi Bicirai, recorded by William Flynn, and edited by Dean White. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,